This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. First, the theological message of James. What is James trying to say in these five chapters of his epistle? Well, the first thing I have to say is that James is no theologian like Paul or the letter writer of Hebrews, whoever he may have been. James is writing an ethical, practical epistle. And that's why people in the church even today quickly go to James. Sunday school classes deal with James for five Sundays in a row. Now, what does James do? James seems to leave the impression that he is familiar with the words of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus. And all you have to do, really, is take the epistle of James and look at the cross-references and you will see that they will go back to Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you find the Sermon on the Mount, the words of Jesus. And now, one thing that I'd like to make sure is that don't think that James, when he wrote his epistle, said, well, I just bought a copy of the Gospel of Matthew and I'll copy a few verses from Matthew. No, he did not. Because otherwise we would have to say, Matthew's Gospel is the very first. No, James knew the words of Jesus by heart. I'll give you a few parallels here. You may want to jot them down. In Matthew 5, verse 7, I read, Jesus saying, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. In James 2, verse 13, James 2, 13, I read, Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Different wording, but the same thought. Matthew 5, 19, Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. James 2 verse 10 reads, Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Quite well the same thought. Wording may differ a little bit, but the same thought is expressed. Go back to Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. And now go with, go with me to James 5, verses 2 and 3. Moth have eaten your clothes, your gold and silver are corroded, you have hoarded wealth. There's more. 
Matthew 5, the verses 34, 35, and 37. I repeat, Matthew 5, 34, 35, 37. I read, Jesus says, But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no, anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And what does James say in chapter 5, verse 12? Listen. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes. Let your no, no, or you will be condemned. And you can't say, look, James, what you did, you opened Matthew's gospel and you copied. And the answer is absolutely not. This is James reflecting on the words and the teachings of Jesus. I continue with a survey, and I find that in the epistle of James, you find references to Christology, the teaching of Christ. Already in chapter 1, verse 1, we have a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. I read James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's 1, verse 1. And now you go on to 2, verse 1. And this is what you read at 2, verse 1. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Well, these are two direct references to the Lord Jesus. Now, I refer to other references. Eleven times in the epistle, James refers to the word Lord, or uses the word Lord. And some of these may point to God, Old Testament Yahweh, Adonai, if you want to please to be exact. And then we have references to prayer at a number of places, especially in chapter 5. That is, Jesus forgives sin. 5 verse 15. Heals the sick. 5, verse 14 and 15. Jesus as the judge standing at the door in 5, verse 9. So, let me repeat. You have references, though indirect, to Jesus in 5, 9, 5, 14, 15, and again 5, 15. And then you read about slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong, namely the Lord Jesus. And that is in 2 verse 7. That noble name is our glorious Lord Jesus. Okay. 
In this epistle, James discloses his Christology not directly, but indirectly, and thereby seems to reveal an early stage of doctrinal development in the Christian church. The next subject, topic under theology. The first is Christology. Now, number two, prayer. This, indeed, is an epistle of prayer. Well, you would expect as much because of the camel need James, who was always in prayer for his people. Yet the first references to prayer in chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, but especially 5, 6, and on. I begin reading at verse 4. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind, That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all that he does. Prayer for wisdom. And God never says, Are you there again? Do you ever learn? You mean to say you're dumb? No, he doesn't. He says, Anyone who comes to me in prayer and faith I will give wisdom and give it liberally and freely. Okay, that's the first reference. Then you go to chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. Chapter 4. I read, You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet. But you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. May I use the greeting? Notice what we have in chapter 4. And I'm using the Greek. You ask, and that is present tense, active. Follow me? Present tense, active. You are asking. Good. Fine. And you do not receive, present tense, lambanata. Because, he says, you are asking, translated, evilly or badly or poorly. And now the word is present tense in the middle. I taste the. That is, you are asking for yourself. A word about the health and wealth theology. You are a child of the king. You're a prince and a princess. 
Now, as a prince and a princess, you can ride along and drive a Lexus. And all you have to do is say, Father, I need a Lexus. And then the Father just gives you, ask and you shall receive. Are you ill? I say to you, be healed. And I ask. And James says, you ask amiss. Because you are not asking in the active, you're asking in the middle, it reflects on you. When you ask something, when you get into the ministry, you ask something, first of all, does it hallow God's name? Number one. Does it promote God's kingdom? Number two. Number three. Is it according to God's will? Not your will, God's will. And when these three line up, then you can say in all humility, Father, I need transportation. And then you will notice He supplies. You may not be driving a Lexus, but you will receive transportation. And that's my commentary on health and wealth. Okay, there's more. In chapter 5, verse 14 and 16, will you read with me? Beginning to read at verse 13, Is any of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. <laughs> yes. Do we? We turn on the radio and we listen to the radio. But do we really sing? I'm not talking about church worship services. I'm talking about regularly during the week. Are we a happy people? Are we singing? That's what James tells us. Is any of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Let's stop you for just a moment. Note how it is put. Is any of you sick? He, she, should call the elders of the church to pray over him or her. And then you read, and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, does that mean that you go to Baptist Hospital with a bottle of oil and you push the nurses aside and you anoint a person? Is that it? A lot of people do. I'm not saying they shouldn't. But I would rather put a different interpretation on this text. When Jesus taught the Good Samaritan parable, he talked about the man lying half dead, naked, along the side of the road. You know, the priest goes by. He doesn't even get off his donkey. And then the Levite comes and he probably took a stick and poked, yeah, I think he's dead, and walked on. And then the Samaritan comes. What does he do? He takes wine 
and pours it into the wounds as an antiseptic to kill the germs. And then he takes oil as a soothing medicine to heal the wounds. And then he took clothes and put it on the man. Look, there's oil, which was used for medicinal purposes in ancient Israel. Now, if it is medicinal, may we not say that the elders of the church come and they pray spiritually and the nurses and the doctors come and they use medicine, whatever the medicine may be. I'd rather have that interpretation, bringing it up to date. Because the emphasis, note now in verse 15, the emphasis should not be on the drop of oil, but the emphasis should be on faith. Will you read with me verse 15? And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Now, don't be radical now and say, well, <laughs> if, if you only had had faith, you would have been healed. But we as elders prayed for you and you failed to have faith and now you're sick and you're dying. The blame is on you, not on us. We came. And my response would be, not so. Not so. Don't you think that Paul had faith when he wrote, and Epaphras was near to death. Your messenger who came to me with gifts from Philippi. We feared for his life. Now, why didn't Paul say, Epaphras, don't worry about it. You know, I have apostolic authority. I have powers to Epaphras, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I say to you, be healed. Look, there it is. And why does Paul say, and write, I should say, in Second Timothy, I left Trophimus sick at Miletus, the harbor city of Ephesus. Now, why didn't Paul say, now, Miletus, don't worry, you've been my faithful associate. Hey, look, I have apostolic powers of healing in the name of the Lord Jesus. I say to you, Trophimus, be healed. Didn't happen. And why didn't the Lord listen when Paul three times in succession pleaded with the Lord to take away the thorn out of his flesh, whatever it may have been? Satan buffeted me, he says. And again, what precisely is that? I think there are some eight interpretations of what a thorn in the flesh may be, and no one really seems to know. And it's best to say, we don't know. But Paul was not healed. My grace is sufficient in your weakness. I have ordained strength. So does it depend on faith? Yes. Does the Lord always answer? He answered no. We have to use common sense. 
came out of grad school way back in 1961, became a pastor. Whew, what a responsibility all of a sudden. Elder took me to the hospital. It was about the first Sunday. He took me to the hospital and he said, my wife has cancer. And there was his wife. Now, I'm not a medical doctor, or shall I say, I'm not a real doctor. And his wife had a yellowish color. And then the elder said, Pastor, would you pray for us? Well, that was a loaded question. Would you pray for us? Did he expect me to say, Lord, Will you please help Mrs. So-and-so and restore her to normal health and strength? Instead, I prayed, Lord, bless this dear brother and his ailing wife. Before long, you will take her to be with you and open the portals of heaven that she may be with you eternally and bless this dear brother who is going to lose his wife. And that was my prayer. Two weeks later, she passed away. I think we have to use sanctified common sense when we pray. Yes, there are moments when the Lord heals. The other times he doesn't. Okay, I'm drifting a little bit. I was supposed to talk about faith. So I continue. Verse 16, chapter 5. Therefore confess your faith to each other and pray that for each and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And that's open to various to various interpretations. Verse 17, Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did, it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Now tell me, where in the Old Testament do you find that Elijah prayed that it would not rain? Where in the Old Testament do you find that it, it did not rain on the land for three and a half years? Kings. First Kings 17, right? Yeah, right. But you don't find that he prayed. In chapter 19, you read that he prayed, and then the servant came and said, after seven times, yes, there's a cloud along the horizon, size of the size of a man's hand. And Elijah said, let's move. And there he ran. And he ran all the way to the Sinai Desert because of Jezebel, of course. But it rained. But not Elijah praying, Lord, may we have a drought for three and a half years? Stop the rain? No, you don't find it. So how are you going to solve this? Well, simple. 
See, this three and a half years is also mentioned by Jesus when he preached in his hometown synagogue of Nazareth. And you find it recorded for you in Luke chapter 4. And I already said that James, half-brother of Jesus, knew the words of Jesus. See, now the whole thing is solved. But all you have done, you have pushed the problem just a step further. And the problem remains. How did Jesus know? And now you can say, well, getting off the hook, he's divine. He knows everything. I don't think that's the answer. What you have to say is that at various places in the New Testament you find references to oral tradition. Here's one. A reference to oral tradition on which both Jesus and James depended. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. Comes out of oral tradition. And it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Oral tradition. And there are many other places where you find this. If I think of it, I'll point them out to you. Okay, so much for that. One word yet about Elijah. Elijah, of course, was a man. And James said, just like us. And I don't know how it is with you. Are you always faithful in prayer? Are you always filled with faith and confidence that, confidence that the Lord heals you? hears you, excuse me, and that he will do what you are asking? The answer is no. No. But Elijah showed that he was just like us when instead of saying, Jezebel, you can't lay a hand on me. I know I killed or had killed 450 of your prophets or priests. No, I'm not afraid of you. Instead, he hightails it all the way to the desert. And then he says, Lord, I'm finished. You know, there is no one who listens to me. I'm despondent. And the Lord says, look, Elijah, there are still 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. They're my people. Now, get up. And then he gives them work to do. Anointing Elisha, his successor, and so on. We too must pray in faith. I continue. The next topic is faith. So first we had Christology, then we had prayer, now we have faith. Sixteen times the word faith occurs in James. Thirteen of them are found in chapter 2. And in addition, you have three occurrences of the verb to believe in the chapter. You want to have the references? Here they are. In 2 verse 19, twice. And also in verse 23. You believe there is one God, good. Even the demons believe and shudder. 
Continuing. The recipients of the letter are called believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. 2 verse 1. The person who is materially poor is spiritually rich in faith. 2 verse 5. An heir of God's kingdom. And then he has a whole section on faith that is not accompanied by works and therefore is dead. Look at 2.17. He says, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Therefore, he illustrates his teaching with a reference to the historical account of Abraham offering his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. And he proves that Abraham's works result from the patriarch's active faith. Works, then, are an essential part of faith. Okay, that's the topic of faith. Now we go on to the topic of law. Topic four, law. The law of God gives the believer freedom. And I refer you now to Chapter 1, verse 25. Chapter 1, 25. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. And now also look at 2, verse 12. 2, 12. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. And continuing, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over justice. Judgment. Good. Yes? The answer to the question, what do you do with chapter 1, verse 25, the perfect law that gives freedom, and what does it mean for us today from a pastoral point of view? What God has done in His grace and goodness, He has set limits for us. Now, some of you have small children. We are past that stage at our age. But your small children, you protect them. If you have a stairway, you put a little gate. And eventually, of course, your son or daughter will climb over that gate. But why do you put it there? In order to protect him or her. And God is saying to us, Look, you live in a world which is controlled by the prince of this world. And he is trying to hurt and harm you and I am putting around you my protective picket fence. My law. And now don't be obstinate and try to climb over the fence and get yourself into trouble. Watch out. I'm here to protect you. Obey my laws. Now, go a bit further. You and I, maybe I'm just 
to talk about myself and not you. But you and I began to be critical. Ever had that urge? And then you say, now, this is what it should have been. And this is what it should have been. And if it only, oh, we can really rip someone apart. What does James say? Here's the law of God. And now you, as an individual, place yourself above the law and you're going to criticize the law. From God's point of view, aren't you in dangerous territory? You assume the place of God. This God who has made the law, God is a lawgiver to you and to me. And we should stay under that law. But far too often we go right over top and we assume the place of the know-it-all. James says, you are in trouble. I hope I've answered your question. Thank you. Now, continuing. The law. I refer you to 1 verse 25 as I did a moment ago, so I go right on now. Jesus says in Matthew 7.21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This is the law of God. Obeyed obediently, walking in the footsteps of Jesus, as Peter puts it. That should be our attitude. But if you don't listen to God and to his law and to his word, then Jesus says, I have never known you, you workers of iniquity. Good. James depicts the summary of the law. Here it is. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he calls that law the royal law, the kingly law. You find that in 2 verse 8. Now, why does James take only the second part of the summary of the Decalogue? You find the summary of the Decalogue in chapter 22 of the Gospel of Matthew. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as, as yourself. And these two laws, commandments, hang the whole law, depend the whole law on the prophets. That is the Old Testament, complete. Now, why does James, and Paul does the same thing, by the way, why does James say, love your neighbor as yourself? Why does he say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength? He doesn't. Look, if I say to you, I love the Lord. I love the Lord. Hear me. I love the Lord. That is a vertical relationship and you will never be able to see my love for the Lord. But if I say, I love my neighbor, the books are open for all to see and read, 
and they can judge me and say, yes, you do. We have seen your works. You love your neighbor. And when you love your neighbor from the heart, as yourself, then also at the same time, you have that vertical relationship. And you love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. Okay, that summary is found, by the way, in Matthew 22, verse 37 to 39. And now I go on to the next heading, the next subject, or next topic, I should say. The fifth topic, faith and works. Now, what do you do with faith and works? It is no wonder that Martin Luther, when in 1522 he came to the epistle of James, said, this is a straw epistle. What Martin Luther did, you have 27 books in the New Testament. He had 23 numbered and four he didn't number. And among them, was James. Why couldn't he get along with James? Because James said things against Martin Luther's doctrine. Justification by faith alone. And James comes around and said, faith without works is dead. And Martin Luther said, many good things in that epistle. It's not for me. Now, he didn't take it out of the canon. You have to give him credit. He left it in the canon. But <laughs> typical Martin, he had no use for it. Now, he mellowed a little bit later on when the entire Bible came off the press in 1545. And then he mellowed a little bit, but later on we'll pick that up. Faith and works. Paul deals with it. James deals with it. Look at James 2.23. James 2.23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. Keep your finger at that spot and go with me to Romans 4. Romans chapter 4 verse 3. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And that quote, by the way, comes from Genesis 15, verse 6. Now, what is the relationship now between Paul and James? Well, you can say, if you want to be critical that James wrote his epistle to criticize Paul. Well, I have my doubts. If you know anything about the chronology, James wrote about the year 45, and Paul wrote about the year 57, when he was in Corinth. At the end of his third missionary journey, he sat down in the month of February and wrote the epistle to the Romans and saying, on my way to Spain, I want to stop in Rome to say hello. Well, that took a leap at least a couple of years before he did because 
I say a couple of years, two years under house arrest in Caesarea from 57 to 59. Then he had the voyage to Rome, was on the island of Malta for three months. And then he came to Rome and he was under house arrest for a couple of years before he was set free. Well, anyway, Paul wrote in the year 57. James wrote in the year 45. So that does make sense that James criticizes Paul. Then the other way around. Paul criticized James. And I would say, you have no reason to say this because in Romans, Paul doesn't touch on criticizing James. Both talk about faith and works. Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 4. James and James chapter 2. What we have to say is that James uses the word faith subjectively. Paul uses it objectively. So first, James uses the word faith subjectively in the sense of trust and confidence. That is, I as a person, as a believer, have full confidence and trust in my Lord Jesus Christ. He has given me active faith. And that active faith gives me, the believer, perseverance, certainty, and salvation. It is my active involvement in the church and in the world. Through faith, I receive wisdom. I receive righteousness. I receive healing. If you want references, here they are. 1 verse 5 for wisdom. 2 verse 23 for righteousness. 5 verse 15 for healing. Now what does Paul do? Paul uses the concept faith objectively. Faith is the instrument by which the believer is justified before God. And Paul deals with this in Romans chapter 3, verses 25, 28, and 30, and in numerous other places. So I say again, Paul uses faith objectively. Faith is the instrument by which the believer is justified before God. Man is justified before God because of these merits. Justification comes as a gift from God to man. Justification is God's declaration that God has restored the believer through faith in a right relationship with himself. So there are the differences. James writes from a practical point of view, an ethical point of view. Paul is the theologian who writes from a doctrinal point of view. And please keep that in mind. So there are no differences. The sixth topic, trials and submission. Trials and submission. Both James and Peter talk about trials and submission. 
and there are similarities. Now, did James borrow from First Peter, or did Peter borrow from James, or did they borrow from a common source? Well, <laughs> once more, let's keep things in perspective. James wrote in the year 45, First Peter probably in the year 63, 64. And James died in the year 63. We established that a little earlier. So to say that James borrowed from Peter, no, really not. Did Peter borrow from James? Yes. First of all, there is a rule, an exegetical rule, and that is when you take two accounts, the one having borrowed from the other, then the shorter reading is always, most likely, the correct, the earlier reading. Why? Because we always add, we always pad a little bit. We always make it look better. You know, you add a little detail here and a little detail there. Yes, sir. Is it true that Matthew, though, shortens Mark's account? Uh, yes, right, <clears throat> right. Uh, the question is, didn't, did Matthew shorten the account of Mark? Yes. Let me answer this a moment. <clears throat> Mark wrote the gospel with Peter standing behind him. And now, if you have the scenes of the Lake of Galilee, the fishing, it is Peter who is giving all the details as to the, how many boats there are, the fishermen, the net that was used, where it was put, and all this. Boats are filled with fish. Matthew is a publican. No, not a republican. He was a tax collector. He couldn't care less about fishing and all the details. He doesn't give you details. A bare outline. There it is. But when it comes to matters of tax collecting, in the Gospel of Matthew, he is right there. In chapter 22, the Herodians come to him and say, <clears throat> big smile on their faces, <clears throat> Master, you are honest and straightforward. Uh, now, do we pay taxes to Caesar, yes or no? And what does Jesus say? Show me the coin that is to pay taxes. And that in the Greek is the word nomisma, and you only find it in Matthew's Gospel. That is, Matthew, the tax collector, says, I know that coin. The nomisma. And he says, give to God what belongs to God and give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. One other. And I'm finished. Peter comes to Jesus and says, I've been told we have to pay temple tax. What about it? Jesus says, well, okay. Peter, you go out to the lake, cast out your rod and you catch a fish and you will find the fish has a gold gold a gold coin in his mouth sufficient to pay the tax for you and for me 
only Matthew has that incident. So what we have to do, what I'm saying is, when you read an author, whether you're talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter, James, John, Jude, you have to look at the background. And then you have to say, yes, I can see the Gospel of Matthew through the eyes of a tax collector. He's always counting. Went across the lake of Galilee, and there is a man by the name of Legion, according to Mark. Matthew says, no, he didn't count. There were two men. They're outside of Jericho. Mark says, his name was Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. Matthew says, no, he didn't count. There were two men. Why does Matthew start with a genealogy and then also divides it up in three categories of 14 each? Typical for a tax collector, a bookkeeper. Now, I can go on and talk about Luke, a Gentile. Matthew says, and was a man with a shriveled up hand. <laughs> Luke says, the medical <laughs> profession shining through. Luke says, no, it was his right hand. Matthew says, and the man was leprous. <laughs> Luke says, no, no. He was covered with leprosy. Matthew writes about Peter's mother-in-law and she had a fever. <laughs> no, says Luke, she had a high fever. What I'm pleading with you is when you read the Gospels or when you read a writer, try to look at his writings through his glasses, will you? Okay, may I go on? Thank you. Okay, I was talking about the shorter is more likely the correct reading. I'm going to give you an example. Will you open your Bibles to James 4, verses 6 and 7 and 10? James 4, 6, 7 and 10. Let me back up a, little mo a moment for a little bit. I taught, told you about uh, oral tradition a moment ago. Remember? Okay, read with me verse 5. Or do you think, Scripture says, without reason, that the Spirit He caused to live in us envies intensely? Now, where in Scripture do you find it? Nowhere. It's not there. You can search the Old Testament, the New Testament. It's not there. This comes out of oral tradition. Okay, then he continues. But he gives us more grace... That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And I go on to verse 10. Humble yourselves 
before the Lord and he will lift you up. Now really what you have to do, and this calls for careful study, not just reading it now, but go with me, keep your hand or your finger at James chapter 4. Go with me to 1 Peter 5, the verses 5 and 6. And you will notice that Peter is more detailed. And yet he gives us the same wording as you find in James chapter 4. Read with me, will you? Young men, in the same way, be submissive. Be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that He may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, and so on. It is Peter, and I say this with admiration, Peter gives us detail, but he is borrowing from James. And is there anything wrong with borrowing? The answer is no. The prophets do it in the Old Testament. As the waters cover the sea, so the word of the Lord covers the land. You find it in the major prophets and you find it in the minor prophets. Okay, there's more. Here's another one. James 1 verse 2. James 1, verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And now look at 1 Peter 1, verse 6. 1 Peter 1, 6. And you have the same thought. In this you greatly rejoice, Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Both writers say quite well the same thing. But when you look at it closely, you have to come to the conclusion Peter is borrowing from James. Continuing. When and where was the epistle written? Well, I already talked about the life of James, who in the year 35, 38, excuse me, 38, became the head of the church in Jerusalem. Soon afterward, he, did I say 35, I meant 44, excuse me, strike that and redo. Okay. In the year 44, Peter was released from prison and James became the head of the church in Jerusalem. So, 44. He died in the year 63. So, now between 44 and 63, 
is the possible date for the composition of James. What can we say? Once more, there is no reference at all in the epistle about the Gentiles entering the church. Paul and Barnabas began their first missionary journey in the year 46. We're not talking about Cornelius now. We're talking about the mission trip, the first missionary journey, 46 to 48. And what we can say is prior to that date, the epistle of James was written. We can also put it this way, that right after James was installed as the head of the church in Jerusalem, that he wrote a letter to those who were scattered about. That is, in Judea, Samaria, and as far north as Antioch and Syria. Okay. James mirrors a period of tranquility in the Jewish community. There is no tension. The only tension that you find is the injustice on the, by the hands or on the hands of those who withhold the wages of the workmen. I call call your attention to chapter 5, verse 4 and 5. Here James is lashing out against the rich who refuse to pay, fail to pay the wages of the harvesters. I read, Look, the wages you fail to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. But for the rest, no, there is tranquility. No persecutions, no trials. And therefore, because there is nothing in the entire epistle which hints at a Jewish-Gentile controversy, we like to say it was prior to the year 49, the Council of Jerusalem. So a year of 45 is a good date. Now, the place most likely Israel. You have a reference in chapter 5, verse 7, that the farmer patiently, patiently waits for the autumn and spring rains, and that fits the region of Israel. That's about all we can say. Now, what about the history of the epistle? The history of the epistle is that because it was addressed to Jewish Christians, it did not circulate among Gentile churches. And also, I may add, that the church applied the rule And here it is, that unless a book was apostolic, it could not be canonical. James was not an apostle. 
and therefore what he wrote was not canonical. I refer you to the Muratorian Canon. This was by a cardinal by the name of Muratori, obviously an Italian name, and I think this was about 1450, something like it, when he discovered and got his hands on this canon, which dates from the year 175. So we have always said the Muratorian canon goes back to the year 175. It fails to list the epistle of James. So what we may say is that for about 150 years, nothing is heard of the epistle of James. Interesting. Clement of Alexandria, and I'm now t- talking about the year 200. Clement of Alexandria, Clement of Alexandria reported on the epistle about the year 220. And even though there are no quotes from it in his extant extant writings, nevertheless, he refers to the epistle of James. And then, about that same time, 220, Origen quotes the epistle of James in his commentary on on the gospel of John. And Origen refers to the epistle as scripture, and mention James by name, the date 220. Then you have to go another 100 years. The historian Eusebius reports that the epistle of James was used publicly in the churches. So about the year 325, Alexandria, Egypt, the epistle was read publicly in the churches. But some people considered it to be a spurious document and Eusebius himself places it in the category of disputed books. Nevertheless, Eusebius refers to his, this epistle as scripture and ascribes it to, quote, the holy apostle, the brother of the Lord. He writes as follows, quote, Such is the story of James, whose epistle is said to be the first of the epistles called Catholic. It is to be observed that its authenticity is denied since few of the ancients quote it, as is also the case with the epistle called Jude, which in itself is one of the seven called Catholic, that is, universal epistles. Nevertheless, we know that these letters have been used publicly with the rest in most churches. Then we go to the end of the 4th century, and the date is 397, 397. And I refer you to the Council of Carthage, the Council of Carthage in North Africa, attended by St. Augustine. There the epistle was officially recognized as canonical. Uh, 
have another note. In the year 412, the church in Syria, 412, the church in Syria included it with 1 Peter and 1 John in the authorized version known as the Syriac Peshitta. The word Peshitta means the common Bible. And now we go to the time of the Reformation. I mentioned Desiderius Erasmus. Now, Erasmus was a Dutchman, and that's why I mention him. But he lived in Basel, Switzerland, and in the year 1516, he sent to a printer in Basel, Switzerland, I would like to compose, bring together for you, a book called the New Testament in Greek. And so what he had to do, he had to get a number of ancient documents, and he put them all together into a copy, which was produced in six months' time, and obviously was filled with mistakes. And there was the New Testament in Greek. He didn't have a couple of pages of the book of Revelation. And so Erasmus, knowing his Greek quite well, went to the Latin Vulgate text and translated from the Latin into the Greek. And that is now the received text, or also known as the Textus Receptus. And that's the basis of the King James Version. Now, there's a whole history connected with it. I can't go into it right now. Very interesting. But it was Erasmus who voiced doubts that James, the brother of Jesus, wrote the epistle. He thought that James, because of his Jewish background, could not have written Greek of the quality the epistle exhibits. And it was Erasmus who was really influencing Martin Luther his contemporary. Erasmus put his Greek New Testament together in the year 1516. And if I mention 1517, October the 31st, you say, that is Martin Luther and his 95 Theses in Wittenberg. So I say they're contemporaries. Martin Luther added his own reservations by observing that the epistle teaches little about Christ, is not apostolic, stresses law instead of gospel, opposes Paul and the doctrine of faith and works. Now, what can you call this epistle? An epistle of straw. 1522. This is what he writes. I'll quote. I cannot put the epistle among the chief books, though I would not thereby prevent anyone from putting him where he pleases and estimating him as he pleases, for there are many good sayings in it. (laughs) End of quote. (laughs) Okay. Then we have William Tyndale. The date, 1525. William Tyndale translated the New Testament from Greek into English. And he placed, here it is, he placed the epistle of James as the last book in the canon after Revelation. That's to say, now here's Johnny come lately.
The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.